from Meltem Demers and Jill Carlson. Welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a podcast about the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. Each week, we delve into one key theme and examine it through a broader financial, political, and cultural lens to learn from the past, understand the present, and explore the future. All opinions expressed by Meltem, Jill, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Meltem, Jill, and guests may maintain positions in the currencies, assets, and companies discussed in this podcast. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. It's been an interesting crypto winter, and arguably we're not even in winter yet because ICOs are selling out within 30 seconds on Binance. I was thinking about this today. (laughs) The thing about calling it winter is it implies that it will end at some point Mm. and it will once again be spring. And while I see a lot of people talking on Twitter about Mm. how much Biddling is going on and how exciting it is and, you know, how everyone's on that grind. The only thing that's been grinding for me, I think, are my gears (laughs) because I I don't see an end in sight. Not yet. So I think what you're saying is it's not winter that's going to end. It's basically the ice age and a bunch of dinosaurs are going to go extinct and new new species, oh my gosh, I can't talk, new species will evolve out of like the ooze yeah, that is it's, left Yeah, it's like there's just like a meteor blocking out yes. the sun right now. And until we find actual freaking product market fit, that meteor is staying there. So really the first topic we did want to talk about <laughs> is interoperability. Cosmos, congratulations. Woo! That's I- actually a glimmer of hope to me. Wow. That building is happening. Because Over Cosmos, of Cosmos launched. Yeah. Okay. Cosmos, I actually think, is a very exciting project. Why? Okay, so f- let's go back a step. So Cosmos is a project. It started life as Tendermint, right? And uh, tender- It still is Tendermint. It still is, but Cosmos is the name of the... Cosmos is the network. Yes. And then they have their sort of... The consensus oh, yeah, algorithm uh, is called Tendermint Consensus, the, right? The consensus algorithm is called Tendermint, and they also have an entity called Tendermint that okay. does sort of... BD ecosystem. Because I remember blah, blah, blah. Tendermint from 2015. Yeah. That's when they, yeah. or even earlier, maybe, maybe 2014. So, anyways, um, the Cosmos Network launched, but the whole focus of Cosmos is this idea called interoperability. And Jill and I have been having this debate, um, and I've been trying to figure this out for, I think, the last year. What does interoperability actually mean? It's the classic crypto thing where people just want to use the jargon yeah. without actually thinking about what is the point of this? Like, who cares? To what end? This is what I always say to you. To what end? I don't, I don't know. So, as so far, interoperability. Yeah. To so what do you end? want to define it? So I don't know if I want to define it, actually. What I was going to say was something slightly different, which okay. is about what a blockchain is even good for to begin with. We were talking about this earlier over dinner, over our salads from <laughs> from uh, the, the verifiable salad yes. chain. Well, right? Jill and I um, actually had an issue because she was on the Walmart salad chain and the Walmart salad chain does not interoperate with the Whole Foods salad chain. That's right. That's right. <laughs> the Amazon salad chain, pardon me, because Amazon now owns Whole Foods. And but neither um, of those, neither of those interoperated with the Blue Barn salad chain. Yeah. So, so interoperability, who cares? I think that to answer that, 
we first have to answer who cares about a blockchain, period. Like, what is the point? And the point to me is all about the clearing and settlement of assets. Yeah. So we were talking about this earlier. Every transaction that you do in life has three layers to it. The first is the execution layer. That's you and me in real life or online or whatever it is coming to the agreement that I'm going to pay you this and you're going to give me that in exchange. Exactly. And by the way, the execution layer does not typically happen on a blockchain. Nor should it. It's nothing. When people talk about transactions per second, for instance, on Wall Street, what they're talking about is that execution layer. They're not talking about the other two layers, which are clearing and settlement. So settlement on Wall Street, for example, equities take a day or two days to settle. Yeah, you just took the serious exam. I did. I'm a certified... Melton, how long does it T plus what for equities to settle? T T plus two, unless it's a cash trade. And what about bonds? Bonds are T plus one. What about futures? Futures are T plus four. (laughs) (laughs) And then... We got a bona fide financier over here. Um, But I think the interesting thing is, so what happens when you... So you execute the trade, which is basically Jill and I agree, I'm going to sell Jill some atoms, which Mm -hmm. is the Cosmos token. So I'm going to sell Jill some atoms. What do you think? Uh, dollar. How do you like them, Adam? <laughs> okay, a dollar for Adam. Do you agree? Sure. For a thousand. I, I, I don't know where it's trading on Polo. I don't know. I was I was getting ads earlier today that... Did you get the email? I didn't get an email, but I did get ads on Twitter, obviously. Yeah, I got an email from trading on Polo. saying, please So trade I don't know where it's trading on Polo, but, but sure. let's say a dollar, dollar okay. for Adam. And a standard contract, so it's 100 units. Mm-hmm. So Jill has just agreed to buy Cosmos for me for a dollar. Um, typically, if there was a broker in between, they charge a commission or a markup, depending on what capacity they're acting in. So we've just agreed on trade execution. So yeah. we log that trade, we create a ticket, and then the ticket goes from the desk to the clearing department. Yep. Or it goes to clearing broker. And what happens- Back office, middle office, exactly. these things are all cinnamon. cinnamon and the, this is what people talk about when they talk about use cases of enterprise blockchain. So what happens is we send the ticket in, we say, okay, this is the trade we've agreed to. Here are the two counterparties. And then Jill um, has to come up with the money and I have to come up with the atoms. So the trade gets logged, it gets cleared, and then it has to settle, which is where the assets change hands. And critically, it gets logged in your database and it gets logged in my database. And a third database, which is the ticker tape. So whatever yeah. market you're in will have a ticker tape where all trades are reported, um, depending on the market you trade in for OTC derivatives, for example, or over-the-counter derivatives, which are more thinly traded. There's one ticker tape. For NASDAQ equities, there's another. For NICE equities, there's another. So one of the interesting things that we were talking about is in the crypto market, there is no ticker tape, so to speak. There's just a bunch of different markets Mm -hmm. with disparate prices. And so you don't know what the best bid is and what the lowest ask is. Which is why you can do this amazing cross-exchange arbitrage. It's not as great anymore, although it still definitely exists. But like even as as late as a couple years ago, you could do insane cross-exchange arbitrage, even on Bitcoin. If you could get money into and out of Korea or Japan. Yeah, exactly. exactly. (laughs) But there were people that could. Yeah, you were taking cross-currency risk. But I think the interesting thing here is, so when we talk about interoperability, the reason that I can trade different assets on the same platform is because of APIs, right? Mm -hmm. And common languages. And so the idea of blockchain interoperability is is if I have Bitcoin and Jill has CryptoKitties, 
they don't live on the same network. They don't talk to one another. If Jill tried to send an ERC-20 token to a Bitcoin wallet, it wouldn't read it, it wouldn't recognize yep. it, it wouldn't, nothing would happen. And in fact, those assets would get lost. But, okay, critically, you and I can still do that trade at the execution layer, no problem. Yeah. It's like, the clearing and the settlement. There's no standard place for us to record it to ensure that the assets only exist in one you can't place. Do, you can't do an atomic swap. Theoretically. In, Yes. From Ethereum to Bitcoin. But this is what people are working yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. The idea so this is the cross, idea of, right. this is the idea of interoperability when it comes to blockchain stuff. A lot of what people get really excited about with blockchain stuff is being able to enforce something at the settlement layer, right? So you want to make sure that you're going to receive that crypto kitty as soon as you send me your Bitcoin. You don't want to have to trust the third party intermediary. This is the whole point of right. blockchain, right? But I also want to know that nobody else has that crypto kitty or a copy of it on another chain. Yeah, the scarcity right. issue. Right. So, so there are a few things going on here. Why don't we take it from the top and right. them off? So I think at the topmost layer, um, there is the idea of interoperability of assets, right? So this is probably the use case that's the easiest to understand. And I think the one that people talk about that to me doesn't really make sense, but it's helpful to conceptualize is NFTs and game tokens, mm -hmm. right? So for example, um, I used to play RPGs. I'm a huge loser and I played Final Fantasy all growing up. So um, the idea would be if I had a character that I spent a lot of time developing in one Final Fantasy game, I would be able to take that character and all of the spells I've learned and port them into a new game and yep. then play with that same character. So in that way, the asset or the identity I had would be interoperable. So that's one but way. But that's across an application. That's across a game. But now different we're, games. Yes. But now you're saying, okay, now I could take it from the Final Fantasy universe to the Zelda universe to mm -hmm. the Marvel universe. So there's that idea. And I think the way, the reason people think of assets is really the primary use case of blockchains today is speculative trading, right? People are speculative trading these assets. People want to move assets between chains. Like, I don't really understand the trading use case for that. Do you? In what sense? Like moving assets between chains. So what's exciting to me about it is not about moving assets between chains, but being able to guarantee, for instance, that if I'm giving you a crypto kitty and you're giving me a Bitcoin, yeah. that that swap can happen. Mm -hmm. And you right? can recognize Exactly. On each protocol. Exactly. So there's interoperability of assets. Then the second type of interoperability, which to me is the more interesting one, is the interoperability of um, actual applications, right? So the idea is if today I'm architecting an application on top of, say, EOS, right? I'm just going to pick EOS and say that um, three months from now, I We're realize- We're feeling generous tonight, are we? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Um, but say three months from now, I realize the computational costs of building on top of EOS and this massive RAM constraint that exists is way too expensive for this app I want to build. So what I want to do is pick up my app and port it to another blockchain. Today, you'd be losing a ton of work. And one of the big challenges, I think, when people are selecting blockchains mm -hmm. to build on is this idea of lock-in, right? So to me, one of the more interesting ideas is what if we create portability of applications where you could deploy the same application across a multitude of different networks. Yeah. And I, I think that you're starting to see this too with the various ecosystems that are cropping up yeah. and the ways that they align themselves. So Cosmos, I think, did a really brilliant job actually of aligning themselves mm. with the Ethereum ecosystem, staying really close to the Ethereum, not only core devs, but also DAP developers yeah. 
and that whole community to make sure that you know what they're trying to build is an interrupt the the one blockchain to rule them all right the internet of blockchains <laughs> right. um which i still they need to make sure that whatever applications have been built will be able to interoperate well that. and i think that's where it comes also down to um there only there's only a limited amount of talent and energy it's not infinite although in crypto it does feel like it because people an abundance <laughs> mindset melton just adopt it will manifest oh. adopt an abundance mindset i don't know what happened to you but can you bring back chill um so so i think this idea is actually more interesting to me so if you could build an application and deploy it simultaneously across multiple networks i think that's far more interesting far more exciting but also i think it helps the ecosystem grow faster like one of the big challenges has been my frustration bitcoin has been people developing their own everything right we have hundreds of different wallets. We have hundreds of different exchanges. It's very decentralized. <laughs> it's also really inefficient. And so starting to see the development of more middleware that can be used across networks, I think could really help um, speed up the development of applications. It can also help modularize certain parts of applications. And I think this is actually one thing the Ethereum community has done better than the Bitcoin community in many ways, which can be both a pro, but also a con if the middleware is poorly I think, constructed. I think though that speaks to the ethos of each of those ecosystems where sure. what you just said is true in everything, right? Decentralization and efficiency are always gonna be at odds. It's always gonna be that. a trade-off. And you see this, whether it's in the US government, whether mm -hmm. it's in the US Congress, like the more, uh, the more fa fractionalized, factionalized it is, the less efficient it is, but the more, in a sense, decentralized or democratic it is. You see this in the Bitcoin community where there's this heavy, heavy uh, impetus to stay decentralized at all costs, even at the cost of efficiency, yeah. whereas Ethereum, it's just a very different different take on that. So interoperability. The other note I just want to touch on, which is funny to me, because last week we talked about consortia joining consortia yep. with R3, <laughs> our friends at R3. Um, what I think is also interesting is more networks are now creating their own interoperability consortia. So notably, um, Icon, OneChain, and Ion formed an interoperability coalition, because really what Wait, this is- Is this the same OneChain that you were just talking about? OneChain. No. Wan chain. Sorry, I misheard you. I misheard you. Wan chain. Come on. Where, where were you? Wan chain <laughs> was only the biggest deal of 2018. Um, but what I think is interesting is these three companies. So Wan chain has a big presence in China. Um, mm -hmm. Icon has big presence in Korea. And then Ion was developed in kind of North America. But what's interesting is the three got together and they had this event where they talked about interoperability. But really what it's about is a lot of the things that we built in the early internet days, which, you know, I was using the internet. I didn't know how protocols worked, but I knew that if I had AOL, which I did, I had a dope handle. Well, if I had, <laughs> I'm not saying, I'm not saying, but um, I knew that if I had an AOL email, I could email someone at Yahoo or Hotmail yep. or any other mail service. And that, um, that service would recognize my mail, would be able to read it. We'd be able to operate in the same way, even though these were different networks, different apps. You made the point though earlier, and I think it's a very astute one, that interoperability, even in that case, even when we're talking about SMTP and early internet protocols, is not really at the heart of it a technology issue. It's a social issue. It's, it's a, a social issue, exactly. Okay. This is where I wanna delve a little bit into this theme of interoperability, because I wanna go back in history. So if we start with just 
when I first got into startups, it was through fintech, right? And one of the themes people kept talking about was this idea of open banking. And it's just the way it sounds. Um, basically, the premise was that banks are these big, massive walled gardens. Uh, nobody has access to bank data. Nobody has access to banking systems. And unless you're a bank, you can't even access um, central bank capital, yeah. right? And so this whole idea of open banking was, well, let's make uh, banking more competitive by forcing companies to provide APIs to third-party developers so that anyone can build applications on top Open of the up. banking stack, yeah. right? And so this idea took off particularly in Europe, but it's something that gets talked about all the time. And the reason why is a lot of financial technology, a lot of bank software today is not interoperable. And what's so funny to me is one of the companies that really defined fintech was PayPal. And the idea behind PayPal seems so asinine and mundane today. But the idea was basically, if you have people that belong to different credit card networks or payment networks, instead of needing to be on the same network, they could use PayPal. Mm -hmm. And these networks could talk to one another because PayPal was the intermediary that was basically guaranteeing settlement. Yeah, it was the right. peanut butter on the bread, right? Exactly. So sticking it together. And so what I think is so interesting is here we are, right? We have come from this place where we tried to make finance interoperable, and it still isn't. I have this issue. I normally use an American Express card, but a lot of places aren't part of the Amex network. So I have to carry a Visa card, right? Mm -hmm. We still live in a world. Just tonight at dinner. Yeah. They don't take Amex. Oh, they didn't? No. So you had to yeah. use a Visa card, right? So I think, again, when we talk about interoperability, people don't understand that a lot of the tools we use um, that are interoperable feel seamless and it doesn't matter who you use. But then with banking, like if you're not, I bank with JPMorgan Chase. If you're not on JPMorgan Chase, I can't send you same day wire. Yeah which is crazy. Which I, you actually see this in Venezuela. As you know, I've been doing all of this research on Venezuela over the last couple of months. So the average person in Venezuela has between four and six bank accounts right. with all of the different mm -hmm. banks within Venezuela. And the reason for that is, is because they have to do bank transfers every time anyone does any kind of transaction. You're just buying rice at the grocery store. You have to do a bank transfer to buy that because the card networks are always down yeah. because you can't carry cash because cash is so worthless. So you have to do a bank transfer. But if you're the grocery store and you only are on Banco Mercantil, for example, right. I'd better have a bank account there so that I can wire it to you immediately for immediate settlement. Right. And this is actually, so this is what's really um, interesting. And we're getting a little bit, like this episode is going to be a little bit about interoperability, a little bit about clearing and settlement and a whole lot of other stuff. But this is really the, the interesting part of the issue for me, right? Is in Bitcoin, when you make a Bitcoin trade today, so if you and I make a Bitcoin trade and um, we agree to a specific price, we could do that right now. Yep. Then to clear that trade, well, we'll wait for the six confirmations. <laughs> yes, we'll wait. We'll wait an hour. But no, that's that's the settlement part. For execution, sure. we don't need that. Yeah, right? for execution, okay. we don't. So we can execute right now. The way that we would clear, we could do it right now because the ledger is. Whoops, we just cut out. The ledger <laughs> is the blockchain. Um, but in order to settle, it takes six confirmations. First, you have to get my wire. Then it takes six confirmations for me to guarantee that I have the Bitcoin. And so now what we've started to do, there's this massive issue because every trade in Bitcoin is digitally settled. It's settled on chain. It has on chain final finality. And people are finally like six years later waking up and they're like, wait a minute, how come in other markets way more efficient? Well, it's because they do something called netting. And so I feel like crypto is now getting familiar with the idea of netting. So, um, what is netting, Milton? 
<laughs> Let me tell you about really boring things. Okay, so in traditional in traditional finance, people aren't just sending money back and forth all the time. What they do is um, periodically they'll net their trades. So what that means is if J.P. Morgan and say uh, Goldman are trading back and forth all day across different departments, across different accounts, what they'll do is at the end of the day, they'll look at the net balance. So let's say in aggregate, um, there are you know three million of transactions going from JP Morgan to Goldman and two million going the other way. Really the difference, that's the gross amount, the net, the difference is one million. So instead of sending three million and then two million back, what they're gonna do is they're only gonna send one million one way. So this idea is really about minimizing the amount, the number of transactions that it's need an to efficiency sent. thing. Exactly. And so what's so funny to me is um, the whole premise of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is you can be your own bank and you have settlement finality and all of these things. But the innovations that people are most excited about is effing netting, which is like <laughs> so mundane and so basic. But I, okay, I have to ask because I feel like I'm missing something here. I've I've been like under a rock for the last month for context. Who's excited about netting? Is there a project working on this that I just no? But I've people missed? are like now discovering netting. So what people oh, okay. are doing is they're launching these projects where you can trade crypto in cold storage, and it's like no, they're just netting. They're moving zeros <laughs> and ones in a database for you so that you don't have to remove your assets. Yeah, this goes back to something that I was going to say earlier when you were talking about PayPal, because you made the point that PayPal is really an intermediary amongst all of these different financial institutions and financial systems. And in a way, that's what Visa is too, to the correspondent banking network. Um, That's what most of the Mm -hmm. financial tools that we use every day are, just these big intermediaries Mm -hmm. that provide a really nice abstraction layer for us to interact with. Right. And what I feel like the space is grappling with, to go back to the bear market blues theme, yeah. is that um, you know, what do you do when you take away all of those intermediaries? Because you're not just gonna automate everything away. Like it's not even if even if there is something to be solved at the settlement layer, what you're innovating around around things like netting or things happening at the execution layer. Right. It's nothing new, and people want that same familiar experience that they're used to of but, having an intermediary it's handle not all just, of these it's things. It's not just about a familiar experience. I think what we forget sometimes is finance has been and markets have been evolutionary, right? So the example I always use is um, I used to trade carbon, right? And this was back in 2008 when carbon was a fairly esoteric asset class. There were um, EU European Union ETS certificates that you could trade. There's like it's a ETS. It's a European carbon certificate that was okay. based on um, you know, a bunch of countries in the eurozone that had chosen to adopt the Kyoto Treaty and they were now tagging and trading carbon. I don't know how you track This is me molecules. pretending to know anything about commodities. Okay, <laughs> but here's here's the more interesting part. So in the US, there was another market um, for something called REGIS, or Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative Credits. And so the market, the way it worked, um, basically there was an auction that was done by these 10 Northeastern states. And if you were a producer of carbon, you would, theoretically, it was a supply and demand game that had a limited number of credits. So everyone bought, anyone could buy credits in this market. So. I uh, asked the head trader on my desk, I was like, hey, can I have a million dollars to buy these credits? I think we can make some money here. He's like, sure, whatever. And so you bought these credits and now you have these credits, they get issued at whatever the, the auction strike price is. And there are only about 50 other brokers that have these credits. 
So whenever you wanted to do a trade, what you would do is you literally pick up your phone and you would call RBS, you would call Deutsche, you would mm-hmm. call Credit Suisse, you would call the few family offices and other broker dealers that had desks that were trading this stuff and you all knew each other. And in this way, you developed an inside market, yeah. right? But really, um, you're trading molecules of carbon, really esoteric idea. And eventually what happened to this market is instead of being an inside market that was super fragmented, it started to become a more coordinated and organized market. It became less physically driven and more digitally driven. And this is, I think, the direction crypto is headed is to date most of the Bitcoin trading and really trading of most assets that have market depth is done over the counter. Yeah. It's done over the counter, right? So the execution is Even equities. Exactly. A lot of the volume is actually but done in, OTC. But in equities, the data is visible. The issue yeah. with with crypto OTC markets, none of the data is visible. So I have no idea what true market depth is because everything's priced OTC. Well, that was like the markets that I used to trade. Mm-hmm. Emerging markets debt. Sure, you have trace for most bonds, but that actually doesn't even apply to most EM debt. At least it didn't five years ago when I so was So someone wants this. to make a, a DeFi trace. I would love to see that. Okay, so firstly, what is trace? Trace is basically the ticker tape for bond markets. What now we're talking mean? about we're talking about OTC markets. We're yep. talking about over the counter markets. This means markets that don't take place on a centralized exchange or any exchange. Yeah, there's matter. no venue. There's no venue. There's no ECN. There's no matching. It's just engine. everyone picking up their phones, yelling "Buy, sell, buy." I said "Buy, damn it!" at each other. <laughs> or you like, get on Telegram and you say like, "What's the price on a hundred? Yeah, no one on Wall Street's doing that. <laughs> on Wall Street, the way it works is you pick up the phone or you yeah. go on your Bloomberg chat or whatever. In crypto, yeah, you go on Telegram and yep. you hit up the guys at Genesis or whatever, and you yeah. do a big fat trade with them. Um, <laughs> More skinny trades now. Winter, <laughs> but yeah. uh, so. It's trading that doesn't have a venue. It's a market that doesn't have a venue. Now, one of the big problems with this is that there's no visibility then as to what the market is, except for what your own insight is, which often comes from who else you know in the market. Um, And so part of the game, right, is if if I'm a bond trader at Goldman or if I'm a crypto trader at Genesis, part of the game is I want to see as much of the trades happening yeah. in the market as possible so that I have the strongest sense of are people net buying, are people net selling, where is their interest to buy, where is their interest to and sell, what is the, in the inside US market? market for equities, um, if you are a market maker, you have to give the best bid or ask, right? That's right, yeah. So you find the inside market, which means the highest buying price and the lowest selling price, and you have to give your clients that. But so with equities, it's pretty straightforward because yeah. there is a centralized venue for it. There are equities exchanges. And there's standard contracts. It's very deep. And there's a markets. ticker tape. Yeah. With bond trading, there's no such thing. It's a much more bespoke market. Again, there's no venue and there's no ticker tape. Now, this idea called trace was introduced, I think like 10 years ago, maybe, um, to give the print of where every bond last traded. So effectively a ticker tape. It's much more slow moving. There are certain parameters around like what size the trades have to be to make it onto trace. And certain bonds like sovereign debt doesn't actually even make it onto trace yeah, yet. Yeah, it's only and so U.S. denominated that stuff debt. is invisible. When I started out, my desk gave me the like the book of the most illiquid bonds to trade. <laughs> so, okay. 
They were like, give this girl from Harvard this trash. Let her figure it out. Literally, they were like, oh, this is good stuff for you to cut your teeth on. Yeah. Okay. I was trading like Dominican Republic 20, like the six and a half percents of 2048. Like Dominican Republic debt that matures in like 2050. Okay. No one is trading that stuff. Good luck, Jill. That stuff trades probably like once a week, maybe at the best of times. And so people would call in, PIMCO, whatever, would call in and be like, hey, Jill, like, where can you sell me some of these Dom Rep 2048s? There's no ticker tape. There's no market out there. The best I can do is look at like rough comps and go like that. And then, so then I'll sell it to them at say like, say I sell it to them at a hundred guaranteed within the hour, the guy at Nomura or Deutsche Bank or whatever then puts a price up via my broker, which is how I find out where other people are pricing it, like offering to sell these bonds at like 97 so I've just immediately lost three points because you had no idea where the market was. And they're like, good job, Jill. That was yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sick. But, but if we take this back to the idea of basically what's happening in crypto markets, which is what I think is so interesting, is these markets um, in a lot of ways are really opaque, right? And this is where... Um, like people try to use coin market cap, people try to use um, on chain FX and these other data services that ag- all they're Which doing. Which are all good. Yeah, but all they're doing is aggregating prices from across different public venues, i.e., exchanges. Yeah. Um, but you have no idea what the slippage on a trade is going to be, right? Meaning, if I buy a position that's one percent of the daily traded volume, how much is the price going to move? And so, I think one of the interesting things in crypto is like the market is so informal and it's so manual and it's very over the counter. It's very much driven by an inside group who have known each other for years. We have all traded together for years. Um, If you want to buy Bitcoin in size, there are really only 10 people in the world you can call. And so what's interesting to me is we have the crypto market that sits over here. Right, and it's, oh, let me do my hands here. So we have the crypto market that has its own exchanges, it has its own data services, it has its own research providers. It's completely separate and distinct from the rest of the financial market, which uses Bloomberg and all these other tools we're talking about that uses standard markets and electronic clearing Mm -hmm. systems and data systems. And so what's interesting to me is right now, these are two separate markets. Talk about an interoperability problem. Exactly. And so to me, what's so interesting is if we look at what BACT is doing, if we look at what Fidelity is doing, even something like JP Morgan coin, like we talked about last week in our episode on enterprise blockchains, really the idea is if we can start to connect these market venues, really where it's going to start is with something as basic and mundane as clearing and settlement. How do you record these trades in one centralized repository, which is basically what the DTCC does, right? They track who owns what. Let's back up for a second and talk DTCC. Okay. So we talked about this a little bit last week because what JP Morgan coin is doing is all about settlement, which I think is actually something they get really right. Jury's out on the rest of it. I don't know. Wait. So shout out to the DTCC who earlier this week published a white paper. Mm. Why is everything a white paper? Because it's cool. It's a memo. It's a report. Jill, marketing. Okay. So they published a white paper. (laughs) Jill does not work in marketing, as you can tell. I don't work in marketing either. People approach me and they're like, oh, like we're interested in hiring you on as our VP of marketing. And I'm like... I don't know the first thing about marketing. It's because marketing. you have a vagina, Jill. 
It's well, it's because of that. And I think it's also because I'm extremely online on Twitter, but I'm like, that's not marketing. That's just me being a troll. A troll, exactly. Okay, let's go to the DTCC. The DTCC. Okay. Okay. So the DTCC published a white paper this past week about how security tokens should abide by the same post-trade settlement systems that standard securities do today, which I forget who it was. It might have been Wayne Vaughn who posted something on Twitter about like how, uh, what was it, horse and carriage manufacturers believe that cars should, should operate by yeah, the same rules the same, as yeah, yeah. okay so you get the idea yeah. where i'm coming from on this what is the dtcc why are they talking about post-trade why are they talking about security tokens yeah. the dtc the dtcc is a tongue twister firstly but secondly it's a centralized securities depository so people think that when Goldman trades with JP Morgan and like they have these trades back and forth okay they end of day net out whatever cash they've moved between them, people think that they also just like send basically via email the stock certificates of whatever securities they've moved around that day. (laughs) And that's not how that works. To go back to something we were talking about before, JP Morgan has its database over here. Goldman has its database over here. And then there's also a third party database at the DTCC or whatever the centralized securities depository in that country is. And all three of these databases Mm -hmm. have to be reconciled at the end of every day because those stock certificates just live on the databases. The DTCC basically holds all of the stock certificates. Mm -hmm. And they change who owns what. And they just move line items around on the database at the end of every day. Exactly. But... What people don't appreciate, it all sounds very boring, but the DTCC and every CSD globally is actually the living beating heart of, of the financial market. system yeah. of that market. And it's integrity, right? I think that's the other big component here. It's the integrity of this depository that gives you trust in the in the system. They are the middleman that guarantees that none of these securities get double spent. Yeah. That's that's like the crypto talk. Is way the DTCC of a blockchain? Does it have a consensus mechanism? No, oh, Jill. So. Um, um, so, so hold on. Let's let's take this a thread further. So one of the things you and I talk about a lot is um, in the process of crypto markets. So again, the idea I go back to is we have the crypto market over here. We have the existing legacy market over here, and they're going to get connected. And the DTCC wants it to be through them. That's basically what they came out with in this white paper is that. That's like a do, do Eskimos eat. I don't know. That, my analogy is not do Eskimo shit in the woods. Eskimo <laughs> shit in the woods. We're gonna cut that. Is the Pope is the Pope cat is, or is the bear Catholic? Oh Jesus Christ. Okay. Um. Anyways. So, but but I think again, it's like yeah. Obviously, the DTCC wants every security to continue to be custodied and cleared through the DTCC. Yeah. That that makes sense. Okay. But what you and I talk about a lot. So within these two markets. The crypto market to date has evolved in a way that is kind of independent of the legacy market. And the whole premise was like, be your own bank. So we're settling. There's settlement finality. But at the end of the day, the reason... Probabilistic. 
settlement finality. But anyway, yeah. But the reason we, we forget, right? And this is why I think this podcast is fun for you and I, A, because we have problems. But B, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's 9.30 p.m. on a Thursday and this is what we're doing for fun. Well, I am having my uh, CBD soda. Can we be sponsored by Sprig? Yes, Sprig, if you would like to sponsor us by sending us a case of your <laughs> CBD soda, I will happily shill your soda on this podcast. Oh. Uh, but but anyway, what, I, what we talk about a lot is... A lot of what's developing in the crypto market, what we think is really innovative, is like that's how the existing financial market works in liquid assets. And so where I think this gets interesting in all this conversation goes back to how you started this with crypto winter really isn't the right word because winter implies there is an end in sight. And my view is, is that when this cycle is over and the new cycle begins, the majority of assets that are traded on markets today, there is going to be no demand for them. They're going to continue to trade in these highly liquid, over-the-counter markets. And the assets that people really want, I think, are Bitcoin and Ether and maybe a handful of other assets that are sort of known. But it goes back to the idea of why interoperability developed in the first place. Why? Because, so if you think about um, the 1800s in the US, right? There was no U.S. dollar, oh, I know so I want to I want to take it all the way back. Um, so in the 1800s, take it back now. Yes, <laughs> walk it all back. So in the 1800s, every single state, every local community, the bank there um, would issue its own currency, right? And all of these currency, there were high rates of currency failures because these banks would go bankrupt because they were overlevered. Hello, debt episode. But um. Again, what happened is there were all these different monetary systems, and then the Federal Reserve System wasn't introduced until later, after the Civil War, when all of these banks were sort of unified under the umbrella of the US dollar because you needed a stable medium of exchange. Yep. And so anytime you create systems, I'm bringing it all back together, anytime you create systems that are about interoperability, one of the big questions is, well, what is going to be the standard? Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, this is a highly, highly competitive issue, which is why standards bodies, consortia, anything that's about rulemaking around um, agreeing, these are not technology problems. This is a competitive challenge. And every single crypto company in the world today, every single protocol, every single asset wants a dog in this fight. And it comes back to this idea as well of social scalability, yeah. right? Like. Social scalability to me is almost a synonym for standard creation. How do you get people on board with what you're doing? And in many ways, that is, I think, what Cosmos is doing, attempting to do. That is what things like Polkadot, other interoperability plays, are attempting to do. But oddly enough, what Cosmos is focusing on is a Bitcoin hub. Yeah, I think, I think smartly because that's where liquidity is. Yeah. Liquidity, I think, is the best metric that we have of social scalability, of where the standard is coalescing. And liquidity is, it, the, the actual financial definition of it is how easily you can move in and out of an asset mm -hmm. without moving the price. It's being so earlier when I was talking about the Dom Rep 2050s or whatever, like those are extremely illiquid assets. But if we were to look at the standards of any market, that's going to be the most liquid assets because that's where there is the most activity happening. So, but so let's think about this for a moment. So the there, Bitcoin standard. Well, 
And, and look, this is the bet we're making now, but I'm sitting here in Jill's kitchen looking at her, her wall. Do you want to take it down? Do you want to take Hold it on, down? I'm going I'm to bring yeah. it over. Hold <laughs> on. So, like, we talk about this, but this is the Shout out to my dad who made this for me. Okay. So here are this all of these currencies. Money right? as art. But I think... Um, you can just put it on the floor. Okay, I'll put it on. I'll hang it up later. I don't want to break oh, it. Oh, also... What else? What, what do we have here, Melissa? Oh, yeah. So Jill brought me back um, this beautiful wallet from Venezuela, which is super cool. And you can see it is made out of bolivars. You're what did I ultimate bag holder. I, I am. I hold bolivars. So don't talk shit about my crypto bags. I have paper money bags as well, which goes to show you that... Um, you know, this this isn't just a phenomenon that's limited to crypto markets. I think we sometimes forget to connect ideas from the macro market to this micro market and very nascent market we're in. But the reason you see standards develop, the reason you see the US dollar effectively serving as the global reserve currency is because it's highly liquid. There's a massive market for bond, US bonds, as we've talked mm -hmm. about before. US debt is the best kind of debt people want to own. The U.S. dollar, for all intents and purposes, has become the gold standard of our. You go anywhere market. in the world. You People take a take taxi a anywhere in the world. They will happily take U.S. dollars. Absolutely. I had a cab driver in Argentina once, literally sit there and smell the U.S. dollars that I handed him. But the same thing, as more and more chains become interoperable, this is about creating a standard, right? So again, if we look at what happened with Bitcoin in 2015, there was this idea called a colored coin, right? Which the idea was you take a really, really tiny amount of Bitcoin, which is called Bitcoin dust, which is such a cute... <laughs> I the mean, whole colored coin thing holds a special place in my heart. It does. But what I remember most um, intensely about it is, so you could use this little fraction of, Bit of Bitcoin, dust. this Bitcoin dust, and you could attach a secondary value to it. And so what you could attach to it, I actually did an event where I put the tickets on the Bitcoin blockchain and they're attached to these pieces of dust. And so when people I come to the event and check in, yeah, we actually use this stuff. It's called dog fooding, Jill. <laughs> um, no, but Wait, you used... A, a crypto idea, concept, protocol? <laughs> yeah. So we were using digitized representations of things on the Bitcoin blockchain. The issue with colored coins was there were four competing protocols for how colored coins would be created. And what I remember from this is all of these companies wanted their own protocol to be the standard because there were tremendous implications. Part of it is pride. Part of it is, hey, this is my code base. This is what I know best. Therefore, I think it Part is. Part of it's vision, right? Yeah, but a big part of it's also business strategy. This is why I think um, certain Bitcoin network upgrades are so contentious is because... I was going to say, it sounds like big blocker debates so right. and so forth. Every every big contentious issue. But the same thing with every cryptocurrency. But again, like we've had these efforts to create standards before. But what interoperability um, does it is, is it actually pushes that conversation forward because now there really isn't that much room for debate because... If assets truly are interoperable, I imagine that more and more people will choose to anchor to the Bitcoin network because it's the most secure, it's the most widely used, it's the most widely supported. That's where the majority of computational resources are. That's where liquidity is, right? Yeah. So in my view, the more interoperability you create, the more you actually push people towards a standard because there's going to be common currency, there's going to be common language, there's going to be common sort of standard that develops. And right now, really the leader, you know, by a long shot is Bitcoin. Is that a trade-off for decentralization? 
I don't know. I mean, the question to me is... Because what we're talking about is we're adding efficiency to these markets, right? And this is the fundamental question, right? Can... So everyone's excited. The institutions are coming. Like, woo, our bags are going to pump, which is definitely not happening. Nobody wants your bags. <laughs> um, but what I think is really this this ongoing sort of tension in my mind is... By Bitcoin becoming more institutional, crypto becoming more institutional, it also becomes inherently more centralized. We just published a piece of research via CoinShares that 16%, actually 18% now, I think we've updated it, 18% of all Bitcoin in circulation is held by a third-party custodian. Sick. That's our decentralized future. But it goes back to efficiency in markets. Yeah, but so... Yeah, I, I was mentioning this earlier. I wrote this piece for Coindesk two years ago about how crypto is replicating Wall Street. And it feels like we're continuing to see that narrative play out where if 18% of Bitcoin is held by third-party custodians, at what point do we just throw our hands up and say, you know what, it would actually be more efficient if we just had actually the DTCC custody all and of our Bitcoin. And we just move zeros and ones in our database to track who owns what, yeah. which is effectively when you have your assets on an exchange, that's effectively what you're doing. That is what you're doing when you move it internally anyway. Mm-hmm. It's all commingled. <laughs> where does this leave us? <laughs> okay, but, but where this goes to, right? So we've, we've covered a number of different topics, but I think in order to, to really delve into interoperability and why I actually think interoperability is going to be catalyst in sort of pushing the industry towards standards um, because without it's simply going to be like absolutely chaotic um, as we've already witnessed today. But I think the other piece of this is just thinking about what we're doing here, which to what end? Yes. To why? And so this is where um, Jill, I know you've spent a lot of time on DEXs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's been interesting to see. So 0x, which was a relayer protocol. So basically it's a protocol you would use um, to enable decentralized exchange. We've seen now decentralized exchanges are building things without the token. Uniswap, yeah. Yeah, Exactly. And so I think the question becomes, um, is DEX something people want? Is it something people can even use? Or will people always opt for the security of having a DTCC? So this is where I think you start to get into, again, the interesting parts of it. And I actually, I have a thesis. I'm not going to say it's my core thesis because I think I'm more bullish than this at the end of the day. But there is a version of the future in which cryptocurrency and blockchain protocols, any of this technology, it doesn't end up eating the world in the way that software did, in the way that the internet did. But what it does is it unlocks an avenue of freedom in a direction and in a way over your assets and over your ability to move money and your ability to to own property directly, digitally, et cetera, that didn't exist before. And I think that that's no less important, no less powerful, actually, than if software were to eat the world because it keeps checks on powers in certain ways. So let me make that a little bit more concrete. So that's the very airy-fairy version of this. Mm-hmm. This is not a crypto meetup, Jill. This is what grinds my gears. And here we do our research sometimes. <laughs> so that was the very airy-fairy version of this. What I mean by this, though, is that I don't think most people in the world need Bitcoin 
to be running on their own node in their basement and to be custodied on their own ledger wallet. I run. I don't have a basement. I run my node in my dining room. Okay. You live. You live in Brooklyn. We know. Um, most people don't need all of that infrastructure, though. Right. They're very happy to use PayPal and to do their stock trades via Charles Schwab, which clears through the DTCC and yep. blah, 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 blah. But for people who want an extra layer of anonymity or privacy or uh, just self-control, control, direct control over any of these movements of assets... It's very important that they have Bitcoin as an option. And I put DEXs in that same category Mm. where all of a sudden you have a more censorship resistant, more private, more anonymous avenue by which you can do Mm. trades. And I put Xerox in that category. I put Uniswap in that category. And I put even like local Bitcoins in that category as a decentralized exchange. Basically anything that is what Coinbase calls a bulletin board is in a way a DEX. So but that's how markets that end, started. Every market started as an informal list of names where people would quote bids and asks. But now it doesn't have to be names. It's just like public keys. It's public keys. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is actually very exciting. Yeah. And it's not this grandiose vision that like a lot of people like to wax poetic about. But again, nonetheless, I think that it is a very important development in the history of finance 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 (laughs) should i go get my patagonia vest on please don't for the rest of this episode no please no just keep keep it chill um (laughs) but but so we we've talked we've talked about a broad range of topics today and i think really um what we've been thinking about so we started out with this idea of interoperability and like what does that actually mean then we went to market infrastructure and why historically market infrastructure has evolved the way it has why our system looks the way it does and what the implications are for cryptocurrencies and i think we we're starting to now delve into this fundamental tension of cryptocurrency just another asset class and in my view like to your point, that's not what gets me excited. The idea of adding 10 more ticker symbols to Wall Street's trading book is fundamentally uninteresting. Is there money in it? Sure. Are people going to make that money? Sure. Um, but if that's the point, like, I don't know. Why, why are we doing all of this work? Yeah. I think the real point is, as you pointed out, it's about choice. And... What I think is going to be really important through this next market cycle is how we preserve choice for people who want it. So it goes back to the idea of surveillance capitalism. It goes back to the idea of not doxing yourself by being a part of these centralized exchanges where basically all of your wallets and all of your crypto holdings are de-anonymized in this network topology that's being developed by agencies. And it brings me to the final point um, that I wanted to bring up, which is this new regulation that was proposed in Texas. So Texas introduced this new bill where basically they want anyone with uh, cryptocurrencies to report themselves to National Register. Texas, (laughs) where are your roots? Come on. What? Like, (laughs) this is Texas where you have stand your ground laws, where you're literally allowed to shoot someone dead if they come on your property. Like, what is going on? You also can basically buy a gun any day, anytime, anywhere. But 
you need to and you where all, like you can where get is a concealed the carry. I have a concealed carry. It takes zero effort, but owning cryptocurrency is now an activity that has to be reported. It's the classic like they're scared because they don't understand it. Thing. But I think this is a great example of why um, you can't separate privacy from market infrastructure from the asset itself like there are these fundamental relationships um, that we're trying to break apart that you you simply cannot untangle and people take it so for granted if you talk to anyone on wall street they probably don't even know how the dtcc works if they're in the front office they also don't care they don't care they take it totally for granted we as retail consumers tend to also take for granted that like oh yeah, PayPal like needs my social security number and all this information. Like that's totally yeah. fine. I was in the Miami airport earlier this week. I tweeted about this. You might've seen. I don't know if you follow me on Twitter, Melton, but I was in the Miami airport earlier this week and <laughs> there was this big sign saying, oh, we accept Alipay and yeah. WeChat Pay. And like that is for sure the future that we are moving towards is just these siloed wall gardened systems that are going to have all of our information therefore have all of our information about well, no, they who we're all, trading with they all interoperate and they connect data between them and ultimately like facebook and alibaba they keep gobbling up everything in their way so that they can connect all of these data sets um but so I think that this is where, again, cryptocurrency actually becomes interesting again. A glimmer of light in this bear market blues episode. Well, the meteor is like zooming in. It's coming. It's coming. It's about to destroy our planet. (laughs) Maybe not today. Uh, Um, Like it misses the earth. (laughs) There it goes. Uh, But this, in all seriousness, I think is where cryptocurrency becomes interesting again. Mm -hmm. Because if we move towards this cashless digital future where our options are WeChat, Alipay, whatever Facebook Facebook pay thing is. And then it's important to have Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general as an option in this that preserves some of that freedom and some of that autonomy and some of that privacy. But the but the problem is, is in this market, what people need is demand. And the only place where demand exists are places where you can aggregate liquidity and where you can aggregate trading volume and where you can create price transparency and where you can start to create market infrastructure that connects these two today very disparate parts of the market disparate trading the traditional financial system and the cryptocurrency system and they're starting to get bridged and so to me this is also not just about cryptocurrencies becoming interoperable with one another but it's about um, cryptocurrency and traditional finance becoming interoperable for the first time which if it doesn't terrify you it, sh- it should. I think it's terrifying in a way because it's completely antithetical to everything. But it might be necessary for actual adoption. And this is actually to answer. You asked me at the very beginning of this episode what I like about Cosmos or what I'm excited yeah. about. And to answer that, start to wrap this up, to answer that, <laughs> we've come full circle. I'm excited about Cosmos, not because I'm excited about like having Bitcoin interoperate with Ethereum, interoperate with like CryptoKitties, maybe. That to me is, okay, it's like a cool kind of proof of concept. Right. What gets exciting to me is when you start to think about what if we had like USD fiat 
as one of the zones on Cosmos. What if we had securities, call them security tokens, whatever, securities, US securities as one of the zones? What if you had uh, bond markets and and PayPal as a zone? Mm -hmm. What if Cosmos became that peanut butter glue that we were talking (laughs) about before that sticks it all together? That would be cool. That's my answer to you. And very fair point. Um, I think in reality, the way that most markets develop, A, it's going to take a long, long time. B, um, when it finally does start to stick together with that magical peanut butter that makes the sandwich work, um, it's going to be messy. <laughs> it's like sticking to be like a three-year-old eating a peanut butter yeah, sandwich like for the first oozing time. Oozing out like... the sides, like all over the Whoa, face. Whoa, where did that little crumb go? <laughs> Uh-oh, we lost all those transactions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you're probably right. Um, I don't know if we really answered any questions, but... But we've had a good time. <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone's curious as to what Jill and I do in our free time, this is basically it. We eat salads um, on the blockchain. <laughs> we drink our sprig... Uh, sparkling CBD sodas, and we discuss finance. (laughs) Hi, finance. Well, have we ground our gears sufficiently? I think so. I actually feel optimistic now, which is shocking. I think it's the CBD kicking in. (laughs) Hey, this is Jill and Meltem. Thanks for joining us for another week of What Grinds My Gears. We love hearing from you, so please hit us up on Twitter, send us feedback, join the conversation. Follow us on Medium at What Grinds My Gears, where we share a summary of each week's episode, references, reading materials, and of course, memes. Our episodes go live every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. And if you're a crazy person like us, make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode and get it in time for your morning commute. Share it with your friends, or better yet, share it with your enemies. Thank you so much for listening. We love you, and we'll see you next time for What Grinds My Gears.